You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Hey, I'm really glad you're here. My name's Dusty. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to give a special welcome to those of you that came today that are here to support one of those families. Um, really means a lot that you'd be here to support them and want to see that that little one um, follow Jesus and be celebrated. And I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Um, what I'm going to do is, uh, before we jump into our time in the Bible, I, I want to I want to do offer a, a prayer for Mother's Day. And, um, and what I'm going to try to do with both parts of this, this is going to be a prepared prayer. A lot of times we pray, pray like Kenan did with whatever comes to mind, and that's a really great way to pray, is this is going to be one that's already prepared. And um, I want to uh, pray... First, just for the, the regular everyday sacrifices of motherhood, we want to honor those things and um, celebrate you and celebrate that. And then the second half of the prayer, also want to acknowledge that this can be a really painful day, that there's a lot of us that are here that would give almost anything to see our mother, um, or some of you that would love to be mothers but have not been able to or have had some losses along the way of children, miscarriages, so on and so forth. And so we'll acknowledge both the celebration and the pain in this day. So I'm going to pray. I'd love for you to join me while I, while I read this prayer um, with us all together. Heavenly Father, Help us to remember this truth. Our unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that, like bright, ragged patches, are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness. So take these unremarkable acts of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let them be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment of the advance of your kingdom across generations. But Father, you also know our ache, You know the void no human words can fill. You understand grief, the loss, and the longing. Yet even amidst uncertainty, this we know to be true of your works, O Father, and this we cling to you. Your grace, your mercy, your redemption, and your love will extend further and will be more wondrous in their perfection than we ever imagined. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. uh, Well, here's what we're doing is we're starting a new series today. And this is called the way to Li- the way to life, and it's really going to be going from where we're at right now in Second Samuel all the way through the rest of the Old Testament this summer. And uh, we did a short series um, more about what it means to be a gospel-formed people and all the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And we're now picking back up that we're going through a reading plan this year. And we would love for you to start that or restart that if that's kind of grown out of use a little bit or or you're new to Redeemer, we would love for you. We're reading through the whole Bible, some selected portions of it this year. And we're picking back up um, in 2 Samuel. And and there's been a few things that have happened because we've been continuing to read the last few weeks while we've been doing this gospel form series. So I want to look at this graphic right here because if you're like me, um, like the Bible to me, like whenever I started following Jesus as a freshman in college, that man, all of the, you know, the Joshua and Solomon and Abraham, all those names kind of ran together and it got really confusing. So I'm hoping this graphic here will even help you understand. We'll be showing this a lot over the next few weeks just to understand at least historically where we are. All right. So we talked about creation. You had the covenant God make with Abraham. Um, there, uh, 
the descendants of Abraham end up in slavery. That's on the Exodus part there. Moses, God raises up to take them out of Egypt. They go into, um, into the wilderness for roughly a generation. And then, uh, and then finally, they get to enter into the land that God had promised them, roughly modern-day Israel. And that's the conquest part. Joshua leads God's people into the land, and uh, they begin to slowly take it. And it would not be given to them. They would have to fight for it. And uh, then once they begin to settle the land, God raises up a series of judges. It's not like a king in that, you know, the, the sons or daughters of, of a king and a queen, you know, take, take the leadership on. It wasn't like that at all, that there would be the cycle of, of obedience and falling away from God and God would raise up a new judge or deliverer. And there was a cycle of that. You can read about that in the book of Judges. Uh, finally, in that period down in the lower left-hand corner, the kingdom era, there's this united, uh, united part of the kingdom, but not like England. Uh, so it's uh, this, this united era of, of the kingdom of Israel. It starts with a king named Saul, and Saul was a good king for roughly 15 to 20 minutes, and then it went badly. And, and then God raises up a, a man after his own heart, which would be King David. And that, so that's, that's where we are right now is that lower left-hand quadrant um, to help you understand at least, uh, at least historically where it is that you sit on this. So uh, here's what's happened to set the table a little bit for um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, which is where we're going to be today, is that David had done some kind of a census and um, they'd, they'd done some counting of, uh, of the, the, who they had there in Israel and there's something about the way that he went about that, that he knew was wrong, that God knew was wrong. And commentators are even a little bit split on what exactly he did that was wrong. Was it, that was there an embellishment of numbers? Was there, uh, was that he just didn't procedurally do it the right way? Uh, was there something wrong with his motivation for almost wanting to do a flex for look how many soldiers we've got or something like that? And look how many people we are and how awesome we are in the world affairs. Um, we're not exactly sure, but whatever it is that he did wrong, um, he and God were both very clear on that. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with, with you know, tracking numbers. There is, after all, a book of the Bible called Numbers. And so, but there's something, the way he went about that, that was wrong. So, uh, so then, essentially what God does is, um, if you ever read these books as a kid, these choose-your-own-adventure books, we're like, hey, if you want to go into the cave, turn to page 42. And if, if you want to run for your life, page 65, you know. And, or or if maybe even more directly, something we do around our house all the time is do Would You Rather? And it can either be a really bad one, uh, like would you rather live in this terrible town or that terrible town? And you're probably from that town, so I'm not going to mention the ones that we tend to raise uh, around here. But uh, so I get that. Uh, or maybe a positive one: if you could teleport yourself to anywhere in the world, where would you just teleport yourself? If you could go to any restaurant, you know that kind of thing. And so this is one of those more negative would you rather's that uh, God says, "All right, you've messed up. So you've got a couple of choices, David. You can either." Uh, there'll be some kind of pestilence and disease and all this that will fall upon Israel, or I'm going to give you over to your enemies. And so David kind of chooses his own adventure and chooses, well, it'd be better, uh, better to, God is gracious, and I'm not so sure about these other people around us. These enemies probably won't be. So he chooses like the, you know, that kind of pestilence disease kind of a, an idea. And, uh, and so that begins to strike Israel. And so verse 17 picks up now. All right, so here we go. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand uh, be against me and against my father's house. So David picked that punishment, but then he's like, Look, 
you know, all these people are suffering and it was my sin. Like I'm the one who did it. Let, let me pay for it. These, these are people that are innocent, that they're not actually the ones that made that decision. So let, let that result of sin and let that punishment fall on me and not on them anymore. Like there's a full ownership. So I just want to stop for a moment and acknowledge that there's a real costliness to sin. And this is true in the Old and the New Testament. All of the Bible has this resounding theme. And so it's costly to you, even if privately you may think, uh, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, this is what we do, when, you know, Christians, as we rationalize our sinful choices sometimes. We could say to ourselves, well, you know, but it's, it's hard to be me. And especially if it's something that just is like you and you're not, it doesn't involve someone else, at least directly. You can tell yourself, look, actually, this isn't impacting anybody. And, but the reality is, even at the very least, it impacts you all the time. At the very least, it impacts you. Uh, but the, the truth is, is almost always our sinful choices end up um, impacting other people. It's almost like secondhand smoke where, um, you know, you, you may not have chosen to light up, but you walk in and you're sitting in a room with someone who did. And, it, well, you can have some of those effects of secondhand smoke. And it's like that with sin. And I've observed, uh, first of all, I have, I've sinned often, uh, way too often over the years, uh, probably this morning, and uh, that, that I've done that. And um, in, in addition to robbing me of joy in God, I've surely hurt other people. And I could even give you specific instances and in ways that I have. I've also been on the other end of that where I've been hurt by sinful choices of others. And then as a pastor, I almost like a, you know, an objective third party have watched like really tough and sad decisions, you know, like sinful decisions that people have made that they were just trying to find something they wanted and they needed, but they made this choice. And then I've, I've seen all of these other people get really hurt, even victimized, or even people that get brought into that that are trying to help them walk through this really bad choice that they made that they wish that they could undo, but they can't undo. And now there's all this secondhand pain to be sure this is where we start in this whole sermon because it's going to actually kind of push us over, over the top on the main theme of what we're talking about is there, there's a costliness to sin. It's costly to you. It will most certainly was costly to God in sending his only son, Jesus. And, uh, and then furthermore, um, and that begins to transition us to uh, that there's a costliness to sin. But the reality is, is there's a costliness to following God. There is, and not only in the effects of sin, but even um, the cost of being a disciple uh, of Jesus, that there's a real cost to that. And that's really where we're gonna go today is the costliness of being a disciple because that's where David's gonna take us through this passage. And what I've learned over um, you know, my years of being a Christian and being a pastor is we often don't like our spiritual life to cost us anything. In fact, a lot of us have a, a version of Christianity that's been peddled to us over the years it, that, that you have you know, probably well-meaning pastors that really want you at their church as opposed to someone else's church. And then the messaging gets something like this, going, hey, you know what? Uh, why don't you come in? It's almost like Jesus is a, a commodity. Hey, come on in, have a seat. How much ever you want to be here is fine. And there's not really anything else you need to do. But um, if you come here, um, you, can, you can do what you're doing now and you'll even be more awesome. And God wants to make you a better and more awesome version of you. And there's no cost, no small print. And you just kind of come hang out and, um, and, then, and it's great. And so you end up with this almost Jesus Jr. picture uh, of, of who Jesus is that you can put him in your pocket anytime you want. Um, when it's not, he never makes demands on you. It's like he's got this silly grin on his face, like a bobblehead, nodding his head, yes, maybe with thumbs up like this. And like that's how we imagine him. And he never makes demands on us. He never calls us to change. He never, he never calls us to something bigger. Um, that he, for, strangely enough, Jesus Jr. always is affirming whatever it is that you think is great. 
He's already affirming whatever moral take that's really hot in that moment with your culture. He's affirming that. He thinks that's great. And, um, and so we, we've kind of peddled this a bit over the years in, um, in kind of evangelical Christianity in this country. And, um, and we're going to see something today that I think is going to challenge that. Uh, and, our, and one last thing on this. It can get a little bit confusing because, uh, because you may think, well, costliness like this may just really disturb you, the, the thought of it. And that is saying something, by the way, that, that, that it would stand out to us. But there could be a good reason why it may be confusing because um, when you became a Christian, the way that you became a Christian was that it was, there, was no, there was no money you could pay, there's no act of penance, there's no act of obedience that could reconcile you with God. How you became a Christian, and if you're not a Christian and you're here today or you're watching online, really glad you're here. The way you became a Christian is you said, look, I got nothing. I got nothing. Like, I, I need you. Like, I need Jesus' death and resurrection. Grace was free. Now, it was costly to God, but it was free to you. And so it may seem like out of sorts a little bit that you're thinking, wait a second, I, I thought this was free. Why would there be a cost? And so it's really clear uh, what we're talking about here is that you, you don't pay something um, in terms of some kind of act of sacrifice or money or service to the church or something like that so that God will like you and accept you and forgive you. It's actually works the other way around is because he saves you by grace that you begin to see the value of God. You see the value of God. And then if you think about it in terms of value, that's what we pay a great cost to get when we see something really valuable. I would make the case, anything that's really valuable, you are currently paying for it a lot right now and happily. You would do it a million times out of a million. So Think about these families up here that were, that were dedicating these little kids and their whole family to the Lord. Think about the many moms in here that are raising children, whether they're in the home or out of the home, that, um, that what you did is you, you, you looked at that and you said, this little kid is so valuable, I will, you think about all of this, the hundreds of thousands of dollars I'll spend, which is what they say it costs to raise one. I'm gonna lose that sleep. I'm gonna be an Uber driver. I'm gonna worry a lot at night when they get a little older. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all these things, but I would do it a million times out of a million because of my deep love for them. Like there's great value in this child. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay that cost. And marriage is that way, that if it's really valuable, if this person is valuable, that you're willing, very happy, to pay the cost and even reduce some of your personal freedoms. And a good close friendship is that way. If you have really good friends, there's a, an investment over the years that you've made and you've sown into that relationship and there's been a cost to it. And, uh, but that cost is worth it uh, because of the value of that person. And I would make that case with anything, even career, that some of you that have gotten to where you are and you took this coaching job and this coaching job and this coaching job, or you worked for this person and this person and this person, and you got your MBA and you, you did all these things so that you can get there or so that you could get where you are now. And it was worth it to you because there was this valuable thing you wanted to do in your career. All the sacrifices and the costs were worth it to this great end. And that's where David is gonna take us and push on, on our uh, general aversion to our spiritual life, costing us much. So I'm gonna pick up in verse 18 now and you're gonna see what David does that's gonna be really interesting. And, and Gad came, that's not God, but Gad, but although technically God through Gad came to David, I'll be here all day, and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out, paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has the Lord... Uh, 
um, the king come to his servant. And David said to buy the threshing floor uh, from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. So David's coming there and saying, look, I want to buy that. Um, This plague needs to go away. And God, through this other person, has instructed me what to do. Then Aruna said to David, let uh, my lord, the king, uh, take and offer up what seems good to him. Um, Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, uh, Aruna gives to the king. Um, and Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. All right, so basically what he says is, hey, look, you can just have it. You, you want this? You can have the threshing floor. In fact, you're going to need some sacrifices. You can just have these oxen. You can have whatever you want. Like, I'll just give it to you. You're not going to, you don't need to pay anything. But listen, this is the shocker, verse 24. But the king, this is David, <laughs> said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for, for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And the Lord responded uh, to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So what I want to focus on is, uh, I want to focus on that verse 24. No, but I will buy it for, from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. This is what David says. Now, the guy's offered it all for free. You can just use it. You can have whatever you want. But he said, no, I actually want to, I want, um, I actually want to put some cash in on this. Uh, like I, this, this needs to cost me. Uh, again, not as an act of penance so that God will be okay with him. But he's just saying, look, there's this great valuable thing, like namely God. And, uh, and because God is so valuable that I want, to, I, want to give, I, I want to give something to this because of the value of that. I do it with all these other things. And, and because of his value and worth, I'm going, to, I'm going to commit myself and it's going to cost me something here. And, and that verse really uh, floored me when I read it a few weeks ago. And I started to think why. And the reason why I think it surprised me so much really is the topic of what we're getting at today. And that's that I think that we tend to not uh, really want our spiritual life to cost us much of, of anything. So here's what's interesting. Um, this land that David buys from Maruna, that even in that is built into the great costliness of sin uh, and the cost to God in this. Because the thing that he would buy right here, this threshing floor, would eventually become the temple mount. Uh, the place that the temple would be built. That's a really big deal because uh, the temple in the Old Testament, that would be built about a generation later than this is being written uh, with Solomon, uh, was where that will take off, that, uh, that the temple is significant because that's the place where God would dwell among Israel in a permanent way. That's also the place where sacrifices would be offered, animal sacrifices. That's also the place where high priests would do a variety of things, including those sacrifices, but several other things as well. And all of those would prefigure what Jesus Christ would eventually come and do with his death and his resurrection. Um, that, um, that Jesus would be the once and for all great high priest. If you're wondering why we don't need priests now, if you're wondering why we don't need sacrifice, well, because Jesus was also the once and for all sacrifice. We don't need to offer animal sacrifices anymore because Jesus died once for all that would believe. So you have Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus, the sacrifice. Jesus is even described in John chapter one as the temper, as the tabernacle, the temple, that he actually came to dwell among humanity. And so that's actually what Jesus came to do. So this thing that David is buying, even in this passage is already hinting at the great cost of of human sinful choices. The, of, of us of us rejecting God, the great costliness of sin, and 
and God's great desire to love us, uh, to accept us. And the way he does that is through sending his only son. That's all, uh, all symbolized. It's all prefigured. Uh, it's all foreshadowing there in the temple itself. So it was costly to God. And as we can see, sin has been costly to David and the people of Israel. Okay, so uh, this purchase, though, David's expressing a desire, though, is he's saying, look, I, I want my spiritual life and even this act of repentance to cost me something. Like, it, it needs to cost me something, that if Jesus is going to be that valuable to us, it's going to cost us something, too. So what I want you to see here is this decisive act of, of repentance, which is really in view here. One verse that I think is really instructive in uh, 2 Corinthians 7. Check this out. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is a really interesting verse in the New Testament that tells us something about repentance. See, here's the thing. I think some of us in this room can detect, I'm sorry, can mistake feeling guilty or shameful about a choice and think that that's repentance because you feel really bad. You feel really bad about consequences. You feel really bad about being found out. You feel really bad about hurting people. You may feel really ashamed about some of those choices. Uh, some of those things could be part of God's work in you where you're really taking ownership, but not necessarily. The way that you can know if something has been, uh, if there's like a godly grief in you is that it leads to repentance is that there's a, not only you feeling bad, but actually a change in direction. That's how you know that it's really taken grip in the soul. And so we see David doing this, that in addition to him owning it and saying the words and feeling bad about it, um, this purchase right here um, in this land and that would become the Temple Mount was a real decisive act of saying, look, I'm, I'm trusting you. God, you are valuable. This is costing me something, but I'm, I'm moving towards you. It's really symbolic in many ways of his new direction, uh, this repentance that, that, he, that he offers. Um, there's a real cost. And look, I just need you to know, again, that I think you're going to get way more back uh, because of the value of God. Um, you're going to get way more back in return than anything that you spend on this, any cost to you. Uh, but look, man, there's a cost to following Jesus. There, there is. Um, I mean, I can think of it in a lot of different ways. Um, I, uh, I can think of um, sometimes whenever you know that someone's saying something about you, you know, like you kind of hear things second and third hand, or you just kind of suspect that they are. You've been there before. And um, maybe you're at your house and you're, uh, I've heard this called anger fantasy before, where you start kind of telling them off in your mind. You're like, and another thing, and another thing. And they, like in your mind, like they don't even have a counter argument to make because you've like totally kind of, you know, cut off all their lanes of retreat and everything else. It's really incredible. And uh, it's so you're, you're, uh, you're really letting them have it for, um, you know, for whatever it is they've done wrong and continuing to talk to you. And then you have this thought of, well, another way to go would be to forgive. Another way to go would be to entrust my reputation to the Lord. So maybe I'm not going to go chase this down. Rather, Lord, I'm just going to entrust my reputation to you and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to pray for them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust like, but that, that can almost hurt in the moment to do that, to go, oh, come on, for real? I want to not start knocking some heads together, please. You know, that kind of thing. It could be so many different things or uh, maybe a very familiar sin to you that, um, that is kind of your go-to whenever, uh, whenever you sin against God uh, or whenever you feel, uh, rather, whenever you feel maybe lonely or stressed out. Like you've got, you've got this particular path that you feel very comfortable going. And in that moment, you're like, you know what? This time, I'm lonely, depressed, sad, frustrated, angry, whatever it is. But instead of going down this same path that I tend to go, I'll tell you what, you know what I'm going to do this time? Um, I'm going to, um, I'm actually going to trust you. 
I'm going to lean into you and I'm not going to go down that other path. Like it, it almost hurts. And then in that moment, you have to trust that there's pain in the evening, but there will be joy in the morning whenever we, whenever we arise and that it'll be worth it. And that trusting God was the right call for that. And so it could be waking up early to spend time with Jesus. It could be so many different things. But what I want to do is I'd like to guide us through a few questions that I'm hope, hopeful might be a, a bit of a diagnostic for all of us to consider um, the, the costliness of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And um, in some ways, that may even spark some thought in us. It may spark some repentance for us. It may, it may even birth new faith in us for some of us that weren't Christians when we, we came today. But I'm hopeful that, um, that even considering some of the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, the cost of discipleship, that it may reinforce the infinite uh, worth and value of Jesus. So here's a few things. Just I want you to spend some time considering these. First, does following Jesus make you hang out with people you wouldn't normally hang out with? Or do you pretty much just hang out with the people you like um, that are a lot like you and you kind of connect with and you keep everybody at arm's length? Just a question. Is there any cost to you relationally? Here's another question. Does, Jesus, does following Jesus cost you money? Does money that's in your account flow out of your account to bless other people, to be generous to other people, to expand God's kingdom, to serve the local church, to um, expand the mission of God all the way to the ends of the earth? Does following Jesus ever cost you money? Uh, does following Jesus cost you time? Uh, can you think of ta- ways that you've actually said, you know what? Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this to Jesus right here. Um, I'm going to have someone over. I'm going to gather regularly with the church. I'm going to invest more deeply in this specific relationship. It could be a lot of different things. Does, again, if something's valuable, I think that it probably it will not take much for you, again, if you go back to children, uh, to spend your time and money for them. If they're valuable and you love them a lot, then those things naturally flow. Uh, the question is, does that also happen with Jesus? Um, does does uh, following Jesus uh, cause you to turn down sin that might make you feel better for a moment? I just talked about that a second ago. Can you think of a time where you've said, you know what, I actually think I'm, I'm not going to follow that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say no, or I'm going to say yes uh, because of the value of Christ. Uh, does following Jesus cost you opportunities? Are there times where you said, you know what, because of the Bible's moral stance on something, I'm not going to take that opportunity. I'm not going to take that job. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say yes to that? Is there a time where you've chosen not to follow, uh, take a certain opportunity because of your love for Jesus? Does following Jesus cost you reputation? Um, it can be really tempting with some of our friends who are not Christians to say, hey, I'm not one of those uptight Christians that's all mad about stuff. Like, I'm pretty cool. You know what I mean? Really. And they're like, oh, awesome, man. I, I like some not, not uptight Christians. So you don't think that Jesus is the only way to heaven then? And you're like, well, you know, actually on that topic, yeah. Oh, wait, you're not one of those Christians that holds um, a lot of the, the Bible's morals. Like, you don't still think that we need to be doing this. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I love you, but yeah, I do hold those things. Is, are, are there times where we're willing even to take a shot with a reputation as we take risks to make Jesus known to our friends and stand where the Bible stands on a great number of topics? Uh, does following Jesus cost you comfort? Are there things that you say no to that may not even be sinful, but you're like, you know what? Yeah, I can have a little bit more money in the account. Yeah, it'd be nice to go do that thing, but I'm going to say no to that um, so that Jesus would be known and so someone could be served. It's just a question. How about does following Jesus ever cost you control where, uh, where you're like, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to let this thing go right here and I'm, I'm going to let go of control maybe in an organization or in a relationship. I don't have to control things from top to bottom. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to let that go. I don't always have to be right. I don't have to win the argument. I don't have to get the last 
last word. I'm just going to bite my tongue and, uh, and I'm going to kind of sit on my hands in this way uh, because of the value of Jesus and that there's a cost. And so look, if some of this, again, rubs you a little bit the wrong way, um, I, I want to point us to Jesus's words. Um, look at this in Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In fact, right before that, he even said, we need to love him more than father and mother and, uh, and children. And you're like, Mother's Day, what? Uh, he actually isn't saying that like to hate your father and mother, but like that Jesus would be your top priority. Like that's, that's why at the end of the day, this is a terrible Mother's Day sermon and a really good one because this is the point of motherhood is to, to take them this direction here. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, um, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him uh, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus is saying, yes, there's a cost. Yes, there's a cost. And um, elsewhere, Jesus talks about that he and the kingdom of heaven are like a pearl of great price, willing that they're so great that they're worth being, everything being sold for uh, to purchase this great, most valuable thing. And so ultimately what Jesus is saying is that, look, he is so valuable um, that you do need to count the cost. And so if you're not a Christian, these words are, are like really direct directly towards you. What Jesus just said is said, look, you need to know there's no small print in this. If you come as my disciple, there will be cost. I mean, even up to your life, possibly. You're like, man, this is like the worst sales pitch I've ever heard. Well, look, this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, it's all, it's all. Lay it out there for me. It's all of it. If you're not willing to renounce all that you've got, then don't come at all. Like, come, put it all to the middle of the table. And then as a Christian, what you're going to do is, is you're going to have made that initial uh, commitment. Go, okay, I'm estimating the cost. You're valuable. You're worth it. So I'm in. And you put the chips to the middle. And then on a regular daily basis, you're going to take some of those chips back and say, nope, not my comfort. Nope, not my uh, reputation. Nope, um, not my area of this, my life that I struggle in giving in to you obediently. And you're going to pull these things back and then you're going to be here. You're going to be reading the Bible tomorrow. You're going to be in the conversation with a friend and it's going to spark something in you. And you're going to say, nope, back to the middle. Uh, it's a cost that's worth it because you are of infinite value. And it's just like raising kids or that good friendship or that career. It's that uh, if it's really valuable and important, it's worth all of the cost you can imagine. In fact, um, it might even be looked at as no cost at all um, 10 million years from now, whenever you look at all of it. Look at uh, Jim Elliott, um, who gave his life as a missionary in Central America uh, for Jesus' namesake. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elliot here is affirming, yes, you are. You're gonna give, but you can't keep it anyways. You can't keep any of this stuff. I'm gonna give all of that and in return, I'm gonna gain something which I cannot lose, which means the cost to us is, is virtually nil whenever we look at the big scheme of things because of the worth of Jesus. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray that Jesus would be ultimately valuable and even the cost of what's in front of us would be a cost that we will gladly pay because of the infinite worth.
worth of Christ. Lord, would you, uh, would you make that so that our hearts would be fixed on you with this great cost, even though what we saw David, um, that, that it was worth it for him to pay for that land because of the great costliness of sin and even the cost of being a disciple, a follower of God, um, that we too would follow on that path for repentance and commitment towards you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.